Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn and I'm here with Matt. Hello. Hello, good sir. It's been a while since we've sat next to each other in the same space. I was childless. You were childless. <laughs> I know, I've been in the UK and I come back and you've got a kid. Yeah. That's, That's what happens when you when you go away. <laughs> so, how old? Five weeks. You're looking at the moment. surprisingly well. Thank you very much. Are you going to crash any Head second? F- yeah, any second. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you turn the record button off, I am out of here. I am Game face. Going to sleep. No, it's fine. It's good. So it's all lovely and awesome. Excellent. Mm. Right before we go any further, we need to give a shout out to our sponsor, Streamtime. Streamtime who has been a major supporter of us uh, and everything we do. So it's really great to have a partnership with a team that really gets the creative industry and, and is actively trying to improve the creative industry from everything from you know, how we obviously manage our time, but also to our you know, health and well-being, mm. being in, in uh, you know, the sort of hours we keep and, and the people we deal with and the clients and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. So if you're interested in that, go to streamtime.net. Uh, you can get loads of more information. You can even get a free account for mm-hmm. the software. When we published the triple digits of going above 100, I tweeted out kind of what's next, and, and they tweeted back another 100. Ah. <laughs> so we <laughs> so, uh, take that as a binding contract. But yeah, obviously, thanks for the support. Who do we have on this episode? So this episode, we're speaking to Andrea Lau. Uh, she's a data visualization specialist. She's the director and co-founder of Small Multiples. And in their words, they're a multidisciplinary team of data specialists, designers and developers, uh, helping make people understand and, and, and use their data really well in a, in a visual way. Yeah, and what I really enjoyed about this episode was I think you and I just treated this as like an hour-long workshop in what is data, how should we think about data. <laughs> I know, it was like, wow, I'm really learning a lot here. Yeah, I kind of sat there in silence making notes a lot of the time, um, <laughs> but it's just Andrew was um, very good at explaining what she, what she does and why she does it and how, like our relationship, I guess, to data at the moment. It's just a whole whole area that is super fascinating and interesting and I hope everyone finds it as interesting as we did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's jump in. Hey, Andrea, how are you? Welcome to the show. How are you? Very good, thank you. Obviously, we want to get into what you do as a, as a job, mm. but we can't kind of get into that until we talk about, I guess, data and, and yep. kind of, I guess, the, the whole industry. And I guess I wanted a little bit of a, uh, something at the start that kind of explains that th- this could go all over the place because mm-hmm. from my research into data, it just seems like, like I pulled back the, the carpet slightly yep. and then was horrified by what I found because it's just, it, there's so many different tangents we could possibly take. Yep. So is that normal, I, I guess? It, it, would I feel the same as if I was looking up like brain surgery industry or something like that? Oh, my goodness. Comparing data to brain. Well, Actually, data, I, data is everywhere. Yeah. And it's something that touches everyone. Potentially, you know, as an individual, your own personal data, you know, your Fitbits and, and so forth, and your steps from your phone to a little organisation like a small business like ours who tracks their time, to a local government, to a bigger corporation, to a multinational. So at every single level, there's data being collected and there's an opportunity for data to be you know, played with and understood. So, 
Yeah, it's probably bigger than brain brain surgery. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess my question was, does it make sense to you? Mm. Because from my outside, I'm like, wow, it's like it's huge. But are you kind of like, do you feel on top of it? Uh, No, probably not. And I think that's okay, though, (laughs) um, because everyone, people are their own domain expert on the set of data that they have access to or they've produced. And so we can't expect a group of people to kind of have an oversight of everything necessarily. It's good to know what's out there though and it's good to know what frameworks there are and what standards there are about open data, about what Tim Berners-Lee is doing. So a lot of different things are out there definitely and I think it's good to be around that but you definitely, it is definitely overwhelming. I was listening to some data specialists talk about the fact that occasionally, like once a month, they have to get together with other data specialists and just kind of do a download of like, oh my God, this is happening and just get feedback. Is that is that something you, you do? I wish I had the time these days to do it. <laughs> do you remember Google Reader? The RSS? Yes, yeah, way oh, back yeah. when. Yeah. Yeah. So I used I to love, love that. that. Yeah, me too. And um, that was back in the day when I was doing research and doing studies still at uni when there was time to actually trawl mm. through all of that. And there were less feeds that were interesting. Now there are just too many and the quality is too high. And it's kind mm. of similar in the sense that, so I, I was looking at those feeds to see what other people were doing with data visualization. Mm. I and mean, you could extend that to data, obviously. Uh, but to try and keep track of all of that now and to know what's out there and then to be able to know like how to be inspired by other work, what not to do, you know, what kind of familiar patterns are emerging in the UI of DataViz. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely something that's a bit too big at the moment. You actually mentioned like different types of data. And mm. I'm interested in that because I would just think data, cool, here's this big umbrella and here's a whole bunch of numbers underneath it. So can you kind of like break that down? Like what does that mean, the different types of data? So another way to look at data is maybe the intent behind why it's being created. Right. Um, so it might be a government who wants to know more about their citizens to enable good planning and infrastructure. For example, like the census. Like there was some talk a few years back about not doing the census anymore in I the US, oh, um, which was crazy mm. because you need to understand all of these people and you can't just do a survey because it's not representational. Um, you really need to have collect data in a way that reflects the society and then you can build on it. So it's for good. It's for the whole of the society. On the other hand, you have data that's maybe collected by corporations to sell more products. Mm. And that, that's okay because that they serve the sh- shareholders, for example. Um, and so if they can make things more efficient and maximize how they sell and understand their customers better through data, um, then that creates value for, for people and the shareholders and, and often a better experience for customers as well. So, yeah, different intents, I guess, in how data mm. is collected. And then there's how, how it's handled, yes. right? Like when you have all your information out there, I, I use one password mm-hmm. to manage my passwords and I don't. I think I have like 300 or something passwords yeah. and I have it set up so that I get an, I, I know that if uh, there's been a breach okay. of one of my one of the online systems and it seems to be almost like a couple a week or something at the moment like hey this data might be compromised you should change all your passwords what? and I, I guess it's like kind of like a bit scary like how much of our information is out there and what is it being used for yeah like is someone coming in with a USB and just going I'll just download that whole CSV file and 
taking yeah. it when they quit their job. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. On a day-to-day level or on an individual-to-individual level, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. Yeah. But it's when someone who has um, a lot of power or a mm. lot of sway and they have data and they can do something with it, that's, that's probably the scary bit. So I myself don't use Facebook. I'm not on Twitter, I don't think. Well, I am on Twitter, but I'm hidden or locked. Right, um, so it's like a private account. Yeah, that's right. right. And so I try and remove myself a lot from from social media just because I don't want people to search for me and then find stuff. But it's kind of a little bit of a paranoid thing too. Right. I deactivated my Facebook account two days ago, actually. Did you? Yeah. Wow, we're doing high five. Yeah, wow. high five for the audio listeners at home. I'm loving, we're getting deep into this data, which is awesome, but maybe we should take one step back mm. and try to kind of maybe you could talk about like what a data visualization specialist is okay so data's great it can be really powerful um whether in the right hands or the hands that want to do other things with it whatever it happens to be a really powerful way of using data is to visualize it because then people can see it and they can play with it like it's all very well for um someone to analyze some data use algorithms to have an output, but often people don't understand numbers or Mm. often people don't understand that kind of output and they don't know what to do with it. They don't see the trends, like when you talk about P numbers or, you know, statistical analysis, what does that even mean? Is that Mm. good or is it bad? What do I do next? And so visualization is a way of kind of telling that story behind the data to really show people what it's trying to say and then have like a call to action or have some sort of way for them to do something. And so as a data visualization specialist, my job is to sometimes analyze data, think about what a person is trying to get out of it, but equally what the data is trying to say in itself, and then visualizing it in a way or communicating it in a way that is useful to that kind of end user. So what's the difference between that and say a data scientist, for example? So a data scientist or data analyst as well use, still use data, still want to find patterns and insights, but very often, I guess, the output of what they do comes into what data visualization um, right. does. So you might be working with a scientist or an analyst? Yes. Yep. So often those people are within, say, a client organization, and they would be the ones who are kind of the data custodians. They're the ones who are the domain experts. They might have already done some analysis to say, hey, Here's something that I think would be interesting. Maybe you can have a look at that. It's interesting you brought up the – because I was listening to um, Kashir Sagar, mm. I think is his name, head of data for the Iconic, and he was talking about that if you're big enough to have an HR person, you have to have a data analyst as mm. well. Wow. Would, would you agree with that? I'm probably a little bit biased, but yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, where we don't have HR, I'm kind of, you're, you're looking at the person who is HR, <laughs> but we use so many things as a small business, um, Zero and um, Harvest and Forecast and all these different things that track time and track our expenses and invoices and so forth. It would be so interesting, and we haven't even done this as a business, as a data viz business, which is ironic, um, to go in and correlate that data and figure out what does a successful project look like? Let's mm. analyze all of the data behind that. Let's analyze a project that didn't do so well or that people didn't like working on and try and figure out how we can get more of the good projects. Um, mm. So in any case, it's that optimization. Like from a really small business who just wants to do a better job and to get 
nicer projects for the team to work on to a big corporation who, you know, wants to do better for their shareholders and provide a better experience to their customers. It's all kind of the same thing. Mm. I kind of understand when it, when it gets really big because, you know, they're, they're producing so much data themselves, uh, let alone whatever business they're, they're actually in as well. How small can it get, though? I mean, in the future, are we, are we looking at, like, you know, mum and pup's fish and chip shop using data? I think they could. Yeah? I think there's a possibility and there's definitely value in it. Although a fish and chip shop owner would probably know the seasonality already. Like there's a gut feeling to it. There's just, they've worked there for a long time and they know what's happening. They might think it's a little bit unnecessary to do any sort of official data viz. But that being said, new businesses come up every day or maybe something that has less seasonality that's less direct like a news agency or a fruit shop maybe because there's more yep. produce and there are different things like there are just too many things to have a gut feeling about and to understand the seasonality of because there are just yeah too many stock items yep. um yeah hmm. i might be jumping ahead but I, i'm i'm always i have this gripe with data in in how it's used yes and it, it's almost like it's not you know, it's not data in and of itself that is, that is, that is bad or evil or good. It's mm-hmm. how it's used, yes. like how the power is wielded. Yes. There's, you know, obviously a thing called like dark UI and creating interfaces yep. to intentionally deceive users. Is data vis- is there a whole segment of dark data visualization where you can you you can take data and then visually represent it in a way that you know to push an agenda? Because I feel like I'm seeing a bit of that in the news. Where are you seeing it in the news? (laughs) Uh, Like for political things or to do with climate change, someone might take a segment of data and say, well, actually, you know, climate change is not an issue because of, you know, it's hot (laughs) in this part of the world and seasonally it's not normally. Um, And here are these statistics that I've just made up with no reference, with no no scientist name behind it or anything like that. So I'm just curious as to that that part of the world and that part of your world, I mean. There's um, luckily we don't have to deal with it on a kind of day-to-day basis or a project by project basis, but it is out there. And some good examples are actually there's something from the New York Times they did a long time ago. I think it was about employment, and they had a simple line chart which went from you know a, a few years ago to now, and they had two buttons or three buttons. Right. Everything. Let's just look at everything. Then it was look at through look at it through the lens of a Republican and then look at it through the lens of the Democrat. Right. So what would happen is you would click on one and it would only give you a certain spot on the line chart. Like it would only go back six months instead of going back all the three years. Or in the case of the Democrats, it would only show, it wouldn't show the last six months, but it would show everything before that or something like that. Mm. So in that sense, yes, you can easily lie uh, with data um, and you can use it to your advantage depending on how you analyse it. I guess... The reason why you can do that and can exploit that um, is because data literacy and visual literacy is quite low. Mm. Even for us, like I trained as in the academic world as an information visualization specialist, I suppose. But it was quite complex. And mm. the academic world, there were lots of really cool visualizations out there, but they, they're still too complex to this day for us to use in the business. We're still just doing line charts and and bubble charts and things because the literacy level isn't high enough. So even though there are instances out there where people try and lie with data and use it to their advantage, especially because data has a 
a very objective kind of unbiased feel to it and I guess people are trying to um, riff on that. We need to do more on the literacy end of things to try and mitigate mm. that. I'm, I'm story time. I'm going to tell you a story about my dad and okay. data. Everyone get comfortable. Are you ready? Yes. My dad and data. My dad was a lifeguard during a period of time of his life and this is a long time ago mm. and they had some people from the council come down and say hey well what we'd really like you to do is kind of track how many people are down here at the beach over a month or a couple of months or something like that just to kind of get an idea of how many people are coming to this beach and stuff and they went yeah great no worries and then they didn't do it and then they came back three months later and sort of said great so how many people and so they made it up so and that was he he used to see that quoted in the paper and those statistics made up and they said we just made it up because we didn't do it and people pulling that that information to use you know just to say well this is how many people are going down on a daily basis according to these people and pretty much ever since then I just always always thought you know it's I find it quite difficult just to believe something yes. on face value yep. uh, particularly today for the reasons that I mentioned is it a bit like that saying previously like, I just feel like my dad's behind there just yeah. going yeah <laughs> It's really like when they talk about statistics and like 70% of statistics are made up on the spot or something like that. Or, right. yeah. or yeah. you read something else and says 90% of statistics are made right. up on the spot. Yeah. 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 Do you see that happening? or Not my dad specifically, yeah. but other is, people's dads. Is Flynn's dad the problem <laughs> with data at the moment? I don't think Flynn's dad is the problem with data. I actually think because it's so easy to collect data these days mm. that... Data, when it comes out, is actually you can kind of trust it. I mean, we work a lot with government, and so I would like to think that I can trust a lot of the government data that we handle. Right. But you always, there's no such thing as the absolute truth at all. And at the same with data, you always have to make sure you understand who collected it, what methodology was used to collect totally, it, yeah. what are the outliers, what are the weird things about it, what are all of the caveats around it. There's so many things um, in, to take into consideration. And, and again, I guess it's good to talk to you because I sometimes forget this. I sometimes forget that when we're dealing with data, it's not absolute truth and we should represent it and kind of show people, hey, you know, here's some data. It's interesting, but don't do anything too serious with it or, you know, take it with a grain of salt, definitely. Is there any regu regulatory bodies or anything like that? Or There's regulatory bodies around the collection of data. Right. But that's more to do with security and privacy. I don't, not to my knowledge, at mm. least. So how do clients come to you? Do you, I mean, when, when they come to you, what, what are they looking for? They're, they're, have they got a specific problem in mind or have they just got like a big data set that they need someone to kind of work out? And it's kind of a bit of both and other things in between. Uh, sometimes people have heard of what the, the term data visualisation hmm. or they've heard of the word dashboard or they've seen something that someone else has done that happens to be a dashboard. And so they'll come to us and say, hey, we want a dashboard. And so then we do our best to try and understand why they think that's the best solution. Um, and we try and go back to kind of their underlying problem and, and move forward from, from there instead. Other times it's, especially with government, it's about making data transparent and accessible for people. So, for example, with the New South Wales Electoral Commission, they have all of this data around different electorates. One is, where is my electorate? Like, which one am I in? And, and are we voting yeah. for state level or federal level? What What is going on? So people can type in their address, find out the state electorate and the federal electorate they're in, find a little bit more about the voting patterns in that area as well. And that's just about making things transparent, just about knowing knowing your neighbourhood. Um, so there's no story per se, it's more um, the objective 
access of data. Yeah. And and quickly, I assume, mm-hmm. like dealing with the the general public, like you want those answers really, really quick. Yes. And I assume that like, you know, visualizing that data in a way that you can kind of visually understand it is better than reading because we all know that people don't read on the internet. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. Is that a fact? It's just a Nick Gower quote that I always love. <laughs> I don't think people read on the internet. Yeah. Well, like headings. We read headings. Yeah, yeah. But we usually we skim scan. through the rest. Yeah. We did a UI just story time again. We did a UI um, experiment with um, with mentally friendly a while ago, where they basically you fill you fill in a form incorrectly, and what how do you stop people from moving on to the next stage of the form? And it was the, this big red pop up, and and like half the people that were user testing it just closed it automatically without reading it. Cause mm-hmm. It's like I'll oh, get that out of the way. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just like yeah, just like people just don't read. Yeah. You have to force them. So I got a virus yesterday. Spent oh. most of my day. Getting rid of the virus. A computer virus. Yeah, yeah. and it was completely because <laughs> yeah, this is a small enclosed yeah. space. <laughs> <laughs> but because um, I didn't read. I, I just didn't read the thing that came up. Right. And if I'd read it, I would have gone, that sounds fishy, but I didn't read it. And mm. then just went through and then was like, oh, why is all my computer doing weird things? Yeah. We all do it when we're trying to be too fast. Mm. Doing yeah, we're all too things. fast these days. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I wanted to come back to the client thing. So yep. what, what's a good return on investment for a client? After they've they've come to you, they've given you the problem or the or the data that they need visualized. What does the ROI look like for them, or what are they expecting? Because I imagine there's still a bit of um ambiguity about what you're actually going to give them. There is a little bit of ambiguity, not about what we're going to give them necessarily, but what they'll get out of it. Mm-hmm. I suppose sometimes because it's government, the fact that something has been made transparent or has been reported on according to regulations and so forth is that's the that, that's the tick. And the fact that it's been done in an engaging way and that they could get some good views on it, for example, um, and they can use it across social media and different collateral, then that, that's successful. Yep. Other times it's, for example, when we've done work for um, like SBS and ABC um, and the media, like SBS, we did this lovely map that I always still love about visualising all of the suburbs around Australia and just colouring them in by the top country of birth besides Australia. Um, so, for example, where we're in like right now, probably maybe a Chinese would be would be the top one, um, whereas if you're in Marrickville, it would be Vietnamese and, and so forth. And that was released in November in a World Cup year on their news site, and they said it was the best performing article of all articles. Oh, right. So that wow. kind of engagement, the fact that people can find relevance yeah. in that map and then talk about it and share it and so forth. And then at other times it's been something internally, perhaps, an internal tool that's giving them actual dollar savings. So we did something for the Department of Edu- Education about school planning. Uh, and so the process was quite manual up to that point and was fine. But then we digitized that with uh, another company, HGS Economics. And it ended up being something that could be, one, they could run lots of different scenarios. So they could say, let's take out some um, demountables and put some permanent structures in, or let's put some investment into this area, not this area, and so forth. And they come up with a set of uh, scenarios that they can then show people as evidence-based decision-making based on data. Um, at, the, at the end of the day, it saves millions of dollars and impacts millions of um, school children in the future. So that kind of that kind of return is pretty good, I think. Mm, I think that a nice personal return as yes. well. You kind of eyes lit up a little bit when you're talking about that, like mm. like providing value to a large group of people and yeah. making their lives better yeah. as well. It's interesting that evidence 
thing though because i can see that being a massive area especially in the future if it's not already just about needing evidence and i guess data visualization is a perfect way of kind of showing yes i've been speaking to a few data analysts and and one of the things they said that seems to be the big problem at the moment is what they were calling data silos mm. and i nodded and pretended i knew what they were talking about okay like me right now yeah. <laughs> Can can you talk about that? Like, what 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 is it, and and why is it a problem? My understanding is that these data silos are a metaphor for the fact that data is very separate in some cases. So, one organization, just if, for example, just us as small multiples, we've got all of our time tracking data and invoicing in one system. Yep. We've got all of our estimates and so forth in another system. It, make sense for them to be together and working together to give us insights about our projects, for example, and how we do or how people are using their time effectively. But they're not because they're in silos. And if you expand that out to big corporations who are using all of this different type of enterprise software, to governments where there are different departments potentially using the same software, but they're all separated, it becomes a problem with extracting the best value from the data when it's all in yep. different places and mm. not being actually connected together. And it sounds like that's the sort of thing that will just keep on getting worse. In some ways, but people at least recognise that it's a problem now. Mm. So, for example, government is trying to move a little bit more to a whole-of-government approach. Right. That if one person does something, that instead of going, okay, let's repeat that whole process again in a different department, actually, let's go learn from that instead, or let's just start the project as a whole-of-government approach in the first place. So it's it, people recognise it and I think are trying to make sense of it and, and do things about it. What about when it comes to um, data privacy? Like, what, what, what do you, as, as a... As a person who visualizes the data, do you have to sort of sign off to say that as soon as you visualized it, you'll forget everything you saw? Or We don't have to because most of the data that we deal with is not personal data. Mm-hmm. It's not about individuals uh, or is not identifiable. So we don't have to, though we still have to adhere to things like destroying data after we've used it or only using dummy data instead of the real data in the case that it has to stay um, with the original client, for example. So there are different processes. um, But, yeah, luckily enough, we don't deal with individual data too much. What does the dummy data mean? Like the oh, it's just it's modelled on the real data, but it's not the real data or things have been removed or it's just a... it's like a pretend model of the real data that's kind of we we can kind of test with to make sure that things look right in edge cases, for example. And then you would give them the the program or or, or something that they would then use the real data. Yes, or, and then uh, they would plug it in on their side. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. I dummy data was the data my dad gave. <laughs> <laughs> Call back. Yeah, um, teaching about um, people about data visualization is is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, is it something? It, like, how 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 would you go about that? She would be come to an interview and and be asked questions. Yeah, <laughs> true, <laughs> true. Well, I've done some teaching previously from like uni to general assembly um, and Guardian. So uh, Nick Evershed, who's a data journalist at um, Guardian Australia, we did uh, workshops together. So he would run mm. the first half of the day and I would run the second half. But usually, if I understand the question correctly, you would try and either introduce people to the idea of what you know what data viz is. 
to begin with, obviously. Right. Sometimes I run through history as well because data visualization isn't a new thing. It has been going on for centuries and there is a tradition to it and lessons learned. That's the most important thing, that people have been doing it for a long time and people have been made mistakes along the way. But there are also some really great examples out there that you can learn off. So I try and show people that to show that there's a wide gamut of inspiration, teaching them about data. Mm data types, where you can get it from, uh, what it means for it to be high quality, what's low quality data set, and then what kind of representation you can use as well for that data. And it might come off the back of what the data is trying to say, or it could come off what you want to say with it as well and who your audience is, and then show them inspiration as well. So a lot of the things, just to get people kind of in the zone of what data viz could be, because it's still so big and a little bit not very well defined. When when someone comes to you, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Say, say the government's come to you and, and said, like, we uh, we need to show what the data is telling us about this this election, for example. Yeah. How do you quote on that? And how it, and I and I'm interested in in, in both the, the money and the time mm. um, about how long that might take. Oh, so we have been doing this for a while now, eight years. Um, and we kind of estimate and people do this differently, but we estimate on the hours that we take per person. And then we times it by our hourly rate of that person. And we often, so our process is like some sort of kickoff, scoping, sketching, wireframing, discovery, that kind of those words that people usually use in that stage, um, producing wireframes that go into design, then design to development, testing, and so forth. And so knowing that that's the usual process and knowing how complex it is and how many features there are, that usually helps us to define how big those sections beforehand should be. And then that's how we get to the quote. Yeah. Although sometimes they say, we only have this amount of money. Can you yeah. can, can you do it backwards? And that's fine as well. Thanks for the quote. Our budget is actually this. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe if you told me the budget <laughs> in the beginning. So it's a fairly, fairly boring standard procedure. I would say, though, that I guess the thing that's different about data visualization is that formal kind of approach needs to be twisted a little bit by doing a bit of prototyping. So sometimes at the beginning we'll that will be given a little bit of a data set and we might play with it just to see kind of what's out there mm-hmm. and what could be possible as well. Um, so that, that might figure into... The, the reason I asked is when we interviewed Dia, uh, because they're working with kind of new stuff all the time, stuff that's evolving like you, mm. they they found it really difficult to kind of... They, they would give a number and mm-hmm. then in a couple of months they were like, oh, I can't believe you're giving that number because it's now this number or yeah, okay. that kind of thing. And, and, mm. and for time as well, like mm. some things were speeding up massively because yeah. it was becoming automated yeah, other things were like taking three times as long yeah. But yeah have you found that just because i imagine there's a is there a lot of automation coming in not really not i mean really? in a in a sense yes so if you look at our competitors they might be the products tableau and power bi for example right. and in that sense yes somewhat automated but we like to think of ourselves as slightly different yep. to that because those are very analysis based tools they're not really for communication and they're certainly not like more difficult to make bespoke and so we always come from the bespoke um, point of view very design-led very user-led yeah. and i guess really looking at what the the target audience is is going to yeah, exactly. and, and I guess we're t- touching on like you know there's a lot of talk about AI at the moment mm. and obviously what AI can do and what what it can't do yeah and I guess this I guess data visualization when you're thinking about the target market and, and what they can take on that that feels like a very human thing yes to be done yeah 
let's jump back because I, I want to I want to understand more about how you got into this in the first place because you actually you actually studied this, yeah. Yes. Have you got three degrees or one degree? Because, what? Because you've got a Bachelor of Design, <laughs> Computing, Information Visualization, and Interaction Design. No, it's just the one degree. It's just the one. Yeah. I, I was like, is it three? Has no. she done three? Oh, my goodness. Things? No. Okay. I should clarify that on my, on my LinkedIn <laughs> there. No. Okay. So, starting from the beginning. Okay. So, I did an amazing degree at Sydney Uni called the Bachelor of Design, Computing. Yeah. And the thing about this degree, and it's still running, is it's very innovation-led and very research-led. And what they do, and I think these days, they actually run a whole, what they call a studio every semester. And so at the beginning of semester, you get a design problem. You might get an external um, industry person representing that. And then you would work either as a group or as an individual to figure out what the design problem is, do some research, do some mock-ups, put them in a thing and test them with people, get feedback, do presentations. So it's like running a project, Mm. which is amazing. And so I got the chance to do that. And halfway through... One of the courses that was available was called Information Visualization something. It was it was a longer name than that, uh, run by Andrew Vandermore. And I started that and Andrew presented InfoViz to us as something which was kind of in between design and development, where you kind of need to code, but you also kind of need to know how to design and be, have that sentiment as well. And up to this point, point I thought I was going to be a multimedia designer mm-hmm. which back then was a thing you know thing, in flash yeah. in macromedia kind of products and so when I saw this I thought oh that's really cool I'm not going to be here or there I'm going to be someone right in the middle which is really cool um, and so Andrew roped me into doing um, honours um, and then I started a PhD as well but didn't finish that. Um, you, you did get a medal though. I got a medal. I didn't even realize there was a university medal. Yes. So I think uh, if you do honors, um, so sometimes they pick one student out of the department or or maybe out of the lab or something like that to receive it. So that was, that was an honor that was really cool. Um, And the process of doing honors as well, I got deeper and deeper into data visualization. Um, But yeah. So you came out of that, but you didn't go straight into data visualization straight away because you worked in, you worked in web um, mm. and user experience for quite a while. Yeah. Um, so what what was it? What was the bit when you finally went? Uh, okay, it's time to be to become a data visualization. Uh, I I think I always kind of you know at heart of hearts I was was a data viz designer. It's just that I couldn't find a job which had that title back then. And even now right. it's a little bit difficult as well. Think um, maybe the big banks, for example, hire data viz designers or data viz specialists. Um, but back then you definitely couldn't get anything out there. So I ran my gamut of you know big company, small company, public sector. And we were at, at we, Jack, the other um, founder of Small Multiples and I, um, were at a- ABC at your the time. partner in my business, partner. but also your partner in life as in well. My partner in life, yes. <laughs> uh, we were working at ABC at the time, and there happened to be an opportunity to work on the first data journalism project for ABC, which was about a very uncontentious subject, coal seam gas. So we just happened to be at the right place at the right time, and we ended up being the designer and developer on that project, and that was the first project that Small Multiples ever had. And back then, we didn't have a mortgage, and we didn't have a kid, um, so we thought, hell with it. Let's just do it and see what happens. And if we fail, we'll, we should be okay and we can go back and get full-time jobs. But, yeah, that was eight years ago and, 
yeah, it's still going pretty well. Where did you, you ran it just out of your house for a while, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> we ran it out of our study yeah. for only three months though, because Jack got a little bit stir crazy. Right. Um, he was pretty sick of me. And so then we started sharing and then we moved into our own office and we moved into a bigger office. So it was, yeah, it was, it went quite quickly, I think. I think I know, but where, where did the name come from? So Edward Tufty is quite well known within the circle of writing three or four books about information design. So a little bit more print focused. Um, but one of the terms that he coined, among many others, was small multiples. And that's the idea of, say, you're looking at a poster of teapots. All the teapots are different, just slightly different, but you can also see all of the similarities as well. They all have spouts, they all have handles, they might have a lid as well. So this whole idea of seeing macro and micro, really interesting to us and kind of we wanted to pay homage to, you know, someone who influenced us in our learning of data viz and so small multiples. And it's grown and grown. And how many people have you got working now? We're 11 at the moment. What are the range of jobs? And I guess the, the reason I asked that, I, the first time I went into a VR studio mm. I, th I think stupidly in in hindsight I thought everyone would just be coders and I was ah. quite surprised when it was like oh this is the designer this is the writer this is you know and so what what sort of roles do you have within that we actually sound like a web design and development kind right. of digital agency. So besides, okay, oh, this is what we are. We're a um, couple of directors, general manager, project manager, a few UX designers, a few developers, um, full stack JavaScript developers, yep. and a visual designer. But Jack and I obviously have that data viz specialization, and all of our UX designers, three of them are from design computing as well. So very right. multidisciplinary know how to code a little bit, know how to do prototyping as well. So we do have that kind of spin um, on a regular, a regular kind of digital agency. So when a project comes in, does it sort of touch on, it goes through everyone or, or do people take it and say, this is my project? No, it goes through everyone. Yeah. Um, and we really make sure that the team all work on it equally. So we all have kind of equal fighting rights to what we think is right um, and we make sure that it's not just one person throwing it over the fence to the next person to complete and then that one throwing it over to the next person we try and make it as collaborative as possible um, so that a developer who would usually kind of be at the end of a project is right at the beginning of scoping and wireframe so that they can ha have an input about the fact that something won't work or if they have ideas about something could work better. Do you work in like sprints and all that sort of? I like to say we're agile with a little A. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're just small. We're small and nimble and flexible. Yeah. Um, so we kind of work in sprints, but we usually only have one developer, sometimes two on bigger projects. Mm. Um, so it doesn't become as big as a, a need as, as a bigger kind of um, organization might have to do sprints. It sounds like... a to me, like thinking about the work that you do, it's fairly niche mm -hmm. in that, you know, comparing you to, let, let's like say a traditional yes. digital agency that is client, you know, client facing and servicing. If you're working kind of a digital agency or even a brand design studio or a design studio or something like that, you can expand and contract. So you could basically say, oh, great, we've got this whole new client. I'm going to hire two more designers or we, we've got another project that's coming. I'm going to hire a strategist. Are you able to expand and contract at will or do you find it quite difficult because it's quite a specialized area? I don't think us uh, the fact that we're niche stops us from doing that. Right. It's handy when people know how to code in 
in using maps or use D3, for example. Um, but it's not completely mandatory. And a good programmer, for example, would know how to use a whole bunch of things and just like hit the floor running with anything that you kind of give them. But then maybe on the design and UX side, there is definitely a thing about making visualizations that you need to learn a little bit longer mm. um, about. And so maybe it's actually on the design side of things that we find it harder to design, to, to expand and contract. Right. Yeah. I read your piece about how to make maps. Mm -hmm. And there was definitely a bit there where I was like, wow, I'm so lost. Because it, it felt like it was getting quite... I didn't do very good writing then. No, no, no. Just <laughs> it became very technical. And, I, and, yes. I, and it occurred to me that there's probably, yeah, following on what Flynn was sort of saying there, it's probably quite hard to find those people yeah. who could fit, fit in that quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's hard, just for, hard to find a good user experience designer mm. straight up. Like just in general, like often, like especially when you're like, oh, I need someone tomorrow. Yes. And so with the added complexity of yeah, the definitely. work that you do yeah. and because it, yeah, it sounds like a particular skill and a yeah. skill that you develop like, yeah. really well over time develop over time mm -hmm. yeah competitors so you I listened to something and it was about two years ago mm -hmm. and you said at the time you, you didn't really feel like there was any competitors potentially in-house was becoming a competitor is that still the case yes so to pick on CBA, for example, I'm sure they have a great in-house team, but there's no way that they would use us if they've got someone in-house. Right. So that that's definitely a competitor. Um, like I said before, maybe the product-based things like Tableau, because if you do a, a Google search for data visualization, that's what comes up. Yep. But that's like our... You know, we need to do something about that kind of definition around the term and kind of owning the term. So that's a separate thing. So in, in the in-house, have you seen that grown? Over the over the two years since? Yeah, I think so. And so we used to work a lot with ABC and SBS, for example, but they've actually got stellar teams um, right. now who do a wonderful job. So they've obviously recognised the value of telling stories through data uh, and they, they go, okay, let's invest in people and actually make it all, all in-house. I really like the fact that you guys have tried to, uh, I guess, explain what data is in unconventional ways. Mm. And I'm thinking about chocolate here. Mm -hmm. So your project, Not a Single Origin, Making Data Delicious. Yes. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what that was all about? Okay. So Jack, who is the more creative of the two of us, loves to throw around ideas all the time. And this one happened to stick. So this was after seeing... Um, the thousands that didn't. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so this was after seeing what um, Baked Down Cakery, so Jen Lowe um, from Baked Down Cakery was... Um, she was collaborating with other people and, and, and doing these chocolates. And Jack was like, we can, I have an idea about this. Let's try and do this. So he just really casually kind of introduced himself to Jen and we talked and she was interested. She's so lovely. And we thought it would be a good, honestly, like a marketing PR kind of thing for us to do mm. and letting Jack have that creative outlet as well. Um, so the idea behind the project is that instead of just visualizing data as we usually do, how do we taste data? And in this instance, because where you know a lot of the team is from a different place, and in Australia, most of us are from a different place, we thought we would look at ancestry and diversity in Sydney specifically. So we used our our skills as kind of data researchers and look for data on from the ABS census about this ran some numbers, did some algorithms and some calculations, um, and then went through kind of a UX process to try and figure out what the flavors would be. So actually doing surveys and trying to m see if people could match the flavor profile that we, that Jen decided on right. with the um, 
ancestry. Um, and ran through that whole process, did some 3D printing because being, you know, multidisciplinary and doing prototyping, you know, how are we going to make these chocolate molds? Yeah. Do some 3D printing, you know, throw everything in there. And then eventually that came out with um, so actual boxes of chocolate that we sold. But Jack has also been talking about it. He most recently uh, had a talk at Sydney Design Festival um, with Jen. Uh, yeah, that. which I watched and, 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 and it was amazing. And, and I think um, and the chocolates look amazing. Yeah, they do. Right? So how, I'm interested in how you got to those flavours, though, from... You have to ask Jen that. Oh, really? Although we did do some testing in-house, which is so that was great. Yeah, it wouldn't have been too hard to find. I know. Um, chocolate user base. <laughs> hey, do you guys just want to get really fat and eat heaps of chocolate? Yeah. So Jen, it was probably a combination of um, Jack and the rest of the team who were trying to Dasher and Harry mm. and um, Jen coming up with the flavour profiles. And we did a little bit of a back and forth um, internally first. And then, like I said, we did a bit of user research as well, trying to see if people actually matched what was um, what was there. But I think, yeah, it was mostly Jen's... Um, intuition and her experience with developing chocolate flavors. Now you've you've done really well. There's been a lot of um, publicity around mm. it, which has been amazing. Quite often, it comes up that this is was a way to get away from the the tyranny of pixels. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that term? Because I saw that come up a lot. I think that's probably Jack's term, mm -hmm. but I'll do my best to explain it. That we all sit in front of our devices all day. Like right now, the three of us are sitting in front of devices. Yeah. Still. Yes. So many talk. devices in this room. So I don't many. Even want to tell you. <laughs> and we kind of need a break from that. We need a way to experience. It might be refreshing, actually, to experience things in a different way than just digitally or just on a flat screen. Um, and so what better way than to make some chocolate and make, mm. and make something actually tasty? Um, it means that it's different, a different experience, but also makes you think a little bit about what you're actually experiencing as well. Now, going through your website as well, it doesn't seem like the chocolate thing is finished, has it? Because is there a new project you're doing with chocolate? Well, I think that was what was presented at the Sydney Design Festival mm. talk around looking at whether we could actually take sound someone saying that they love the, their partner and like taking that little sound bite and actually translating it into a chocolate form and molding it and then giving it to them on their anniversary or whatever it happens to be. Um, so same sort of idea where you, you know, can translate something that's kind of digital and data and you can't see and you can't feel or touch and actually making it all of these different tangible things. Um, so that's something that um, Jack and the team are looking at at the moment. I'm, I'm really interested in output. Mm -hmm. of, of a lot of your projects. So web-based, obviously web, very web-fluent and a lot of your team sounds are very fluent with, with the web and the internet. But is that the main output? Because I saw that there's, I mean, other than chocolates, all right, putting mm -hmm. chocolates to the side for the yes. moment as not a standard part of your wheelhouse. But also notice some projects working in VR, like the Sunrise app. So, so I guess I'd love to hear more about the VR. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, like you said, we're in web. But luckily, because of the frameworks that we work within, we can actually go to web. We can also go to print, mm. to native as well. Um, so we actually, in the past, have done different mediums still using web, oddly enough. Mm -hmm. The app that you're talking about, Hello Sun, which is an awesome little app where you can actually, it's an augmented reality app where you can see the path of the sun depending on where you are and then like shift according to the time of year and the time of day. So it's good for, say, like planning if you're going into a 
new rental apartment and you want to see where the sun's going to hit the right. um, yeah. it's amazing. The room or playing, if you're doing gardening it, yeah. or something or even if you're out and you know looking for a picnic spot and you're wondering if you're going to if it's going to like be sunny the whole time or whether there's, there's a bit of shade it's the worst isn't it when you put yeah. your blanket down <laughs> and, and then half an hour later like, you move well, like oh no yeah. it's been really good I'm, I've been working with interior designers and ah, I showed them the cool. app and they were like this is amazing nice. like, it's just really a nice way to kind of like very quickly kind of find out yeah. What's going to work yeah. over over the different seasons, I think, which was probably the more interesting thing. Yes, mm. yeah. To actually know the full gamut because it's yeah. not just static, right? The sun mm. is amazing. It does these things. It moves around. <laughs> Where do I put my house plants, I think? <laughs> well, yes. that, that's exactly that's yeah. what it's for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it kind of just demonstrates how it's it's visual. It, you need to kind of put it into context where someone can understand, right, mm. before you, they actually get anywhere close to knowing that things change and so forth. But also the app, I, I didn't understand what it was all about until I downloaded it okay. and then started playing with it. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Cool. Mm-hmm. Need to update the description then probably. <laughs> <laughs> but getting back to your question, so I think that right now we're concentrated on web, but there are definitely – so. Hello Sun particularly was um, a, a project of Jack's again, creative director mastermind, where he wanted to show or wanted to play with and kind of demonstrate that we could do things outside of what we usually do. I think it was a good proof point in us kind of coming together as a team and working on something that was quite different to what we usually work on. But that being said, the for, for us at least, having a client come to us with that kind of project I think is still far away. Mm. But but we're like, yeah, we can do it. And it was fun. And some people, are, you know, there's a little bit of uptake, so it's good. Awesome. The, the question I wanted to kind of ask on the back of that is, is there a point when data visualization crosses over into art? Yes, definitely. So when data visualization kind of started in this modern era when I kind of started on it, you were getting things like the RSS feeds. Mm-hmm. So you're suddenly getting Google aggregating news and you were getting um, all of the RSS feeds of live journals and um, mm-hmm. blogger and so forth. Yeah. So there was all this data out there and people kind of didn't know what to do with it. It was interesting. It was there. So who better to start working with it than artists? They were the first ones to kind of recognize potential value in it. So one of the really cool projects that's arguably data art, but also through the medium of data visualizations is called We Feel Fine by Jonathan Harris, probably from 2004. And he took RSS feeds um, from Blogger and, and um, LiveJournal and so forth and looked for words after I feel or I'm feeling or we're feeling. Oh, wow. And he would take the next word. But then also because of all of the information that people were putting out there back then, which was like much less controversial, if you remember ASL, so age, oh, sex, yes. and location. Yep. And then based off of that, he also did things like finding out what the weather was like on that particular day that oh, that wow. person said what they were feeling. And he made this beautiful visualization that he split up into different movements where essentially all of the feelings are just little dots flying around, but then they cluster and they form shapes and you can filter them. But it's a very, it's not functional really, mm. but it's really interesting from a, you know, it's a reflection of, all of these people on the internet pouring out their souls. You know, it's definitely an, an art piece. And Jonathan Harris has gone on to do a lot of other kind of um, pieces like that. Um, and he's a storyteller. He's not someone like me. He's not a, a functional data visualization specialist. He's he's prob- He would probably call himself an artist. Just before we finish, I mean, it's been 
It's been wonderful meeting you and, and been wonderful kind of researching kind of what you do and everything. And the thing that occurred to me is there doesn't seem like there's an obvious career advisor in high school saying, hey, mm-hmm. I think data visualization might be your thing. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest to people who, who want to get into this? Learn how to coach, like have a design kind of mentality. Like I, for example, when you come back into the country and you have to fill out those cards and they yep. have occupation and they give you like 11 spaces to put your whole occupation. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you guys put. I still put designer. Yeah. And it's the yeah. only, I, and I lie. Yes. It's like I, anyone else that knows me knows that I haven't called myself a designer for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Although everything ro- revolves around that world and I still write designer and just hope I don't get rejected yes. when I'm coming in. Yes. I've, I've, no I've, follow-up questions, please. <laughs> <laughs> I've started to put design because I thought that was a little, little bit more ambiguous in the sense that right. like I'm just involved in design uh, in yeah. some sort of way. That's a good idea. I put <laughs> yeah. designer right. Right. also. Right. So I think someone who wants to get in this spa- into this space should I first identify as a designer, but know how to code and do prototyping and work with different tools that are out there um, for mapping and GIS and all of geographical information systems, um, all of these different things to put in their kind of tool bag to then go forth and then, you know, I know I know really good degree that they could do. But there are a few others as well. So UTS has a visual communications degree and also one about innovation that is really good. UNSW has COFA and all of their, um, the digital media, that what used to be digital media. Um, so there are definitely avenues out there and people recognising this multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary degrees and so forth. Because it does feel like it sort of sits between that kind of your typical web design degree and your typical design degree it's somewhere in the middle mm. yeah definitely mm. yeah. i want to know what you spoke about at web directions i spoke about a framework for making and designing amazing maps so cool. right now i think people tend to go a little bit default mm-hmm. like even if you look at i picked on domain and real estate um during this talk and if you that's go to okay sites, they're like duopolizing everything yeah. anyway so that's fine but then maps to show where um, houses are and where properties are is just kind of the default Google map, mm. which is weird because it's pretty important. Like it's pretty important to know once you find a property what's around, you know, what what, what am I near to, you know, um, are there yeah, parks, yeah. all of these different things. Right. And they just put the default. And the default is like it has some um, bars and restaurants yep. and universities and parks and like it has everything. Mm. So you need to design it. And in theory, there should be a designer who thinks about this. But I think because maps are slightly technical, like Matt was saying before, mm. you kind of it's a bit maybe too scary or it's just like too much work. Too, too hard basket. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to kind of demystify that a little bit and be, be a little bit technical and show designers who were the main audience the fact that they could go and use tools out there um, to help them during that design process and kind of a framework for how to think about um, how they can design better maps. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds like a great talk. It was okay. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> We are at time. We're at time. Okay, fantastic. So how can people find out more about you and your work? My work is all small multiples work. So our website is small.mu. And you can find out about our projects and read some articles that we've written as well. So some of um, the articles are pet projects as well from the um, people on the team. Um, Yeah. And where can people find you? Matt underscore Leach, Instagram. If you want to see round things, round things. lots of round things from around the world. It's international <laughs> now. 
Oh, yeah, going yeah. global, are you? Because it's a circle. <laughs> yeah. And I'm Flint Tracy, and you can find me on at Flint Tracy at pretty much anything. And you can find this episode or more at ausdesignradio.com. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud, and Spotify at AUS Design Radio. Thanks, Andrea. Amazing. Thank you. It was so nice talking to you. Thank you.